Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Thank you, Adam, praise team, band, and Regen. If Regen continues to grow, we're going to have kids sitting in the baptismal, (laughs) which is, that'd be something we could aspire to, but I am so blessed every week uh, to hear our youth sing. I, I know that not every youth is yet born again, but we know the power of the gospel. You sing the gospel, you're going to eventually believe that gospel uh, in repentance and faith. And so I have that hope for every single one uh, of our young people. So thank you, Adam, for choosing songs that can transform a, a young person. Well, we're in Genesis 7, and this is the famous account of the flood. And it's a very important part of our Bible. And so I'm looking forward to preaching it tonight. But let's ask the Lord to bless our time before we get into it. Lord, thank you for this passage. And we thank you that we have a great God that we can sing about tonight that has been revealed to us through the Holy Scriptures and through the incarnation of the Son of God and by the Spirit of God. Indeed, we worship tonight the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our great God. And Lord, we pray tonight that as we consider this passage, we could behold your greatness in a way we've never uh, beheld before. And we pray that it would strengthen our faith. It would nourish our love for you, even as our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ is fostered. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's so many ancient accounts of a flood, which is not surprising because there was a flood. And not only was there a flood, it was universal in in scope. Every nook and cranny of this created order was impacted by floodwaters. Indeed, as the great Old Testament scholar John Currid argues in his Old Testament theology, if the biblical stories are true, and they are, one would be surprised not to find some reference to these truths in extra biblical literature. And indeed, in ancient Near Eastern myth, now he's not calling the Bible myth, he's talking about these other accounts, in ancient Near Eastern myth, we do see some kernels of historical truth. But I would submit to you that apart from the Genesis account, inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit as Moses uh, wrote this account, apart from the Genesis account, all these other accounts of a flood is pagan. It's filled, they are filled with polytheism and magic and paganism. The gods, and that's right, plural, the gods in these accounts are petty. They do not value humans and at best tolerate them. Indeed, these are parodies of the truth. Many of these gods, if you, if you consider them, 
And oftentimes, if you have taken an Old Testament class, you have to read some of that nonsense. They often act with the same desires and faults and needs as a human. They have all of the foibles of, of a sinful human. Uh, there's a striking lack of morality among these gods, and they appear so self-absorbed and depraved. On the contrary, the biblical account depicts not many gods or several gods, but one God, the one and true and living God, who is not petty, he is not pagan, he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his perfect righteousness, holiness, and justice. Uh, and yet, he's merciful. He's merciful to rebellious image bearers like us who deserve nothing but the floodwaters of, of judgment. Well, let me give you one example of what I'm talking about with these uh, pagan accounts. There's a famous one, a Babylonian account, the Epic of Atrahasis. Um, the Epic of Atrahasis, it's 4,000 years old. And it's a story of the Babylonian gods. And so these gods grow tired of working. They get tired of working. So what they do, they murder one of their own gods and they mix his blood with dirt and they form humanity as slaves. Now they can delegate their work to these slaves and they can kick up their feet and, and relax. Well, there's one problem. <laughs> well, many problems with that account. Uh, one is though humanity keeps multiplying. That's their problem. Um, these slaves that they created for their own leisure, they keep multiplying and they keep filling the earth and it's annoying these gods. One of the gods speaks, and here's what he says. The clamor of mankind has become burdensome to me. I am losing sleep to their uproar. And so the gods send plagues. They send curses, even infertility to these human slaves to quiet them. Nothing seems to work and so they're forced to pull out all the stops and they cause a flood on the earth. Well, texts like this teach us a bit of the worldview that surrounded Israel in their day. Worldviews like this, the gods are petty, the gods are volatile. That was the Egyptian gods. Eventually they would learn that's the Canaanite gods and, and the Babylonian gods. The gods are petty and the humans are not valuable. And hence the slavery. And that's behind all slavery in history. When we fail to understand the worth and the dignity of all human beings. And Moses, for his part, does not borrow from these pagan accounts of the flood. On the contrary, he confronts them. He's taking them on. He is giving the people of God a biblical worldview. And so Moses teaches, 
in contrast to the epic of Atrahasis, that the Lord creates with the breath of life, not the blood of death. And the Lord's humans, they're not slaves. They're kingly. That's the image of God language. They, they are rulers. They are vice regents. They have worth and dignity. And far from being a burden to God, he commands the humans to multiply and to fill the earth. And that's what brings him glory. It's what brings him pleasure. And the text has made clear thus far in our book of Genesis that the Lord's flood is a response to human rebellion, not a selfish response to loud humans. And what we're going to see and what we know is that this judgment is good because justice is good. Justice is always good. The judgment and the destruction of humankind demonstrates that the children of the serpent will not ultimately win. That's one of the reasons Genesis 7 is so important. The children, those of the seed of the serpent will not win. We need to remember that today when we see things going crazy in our culture. The seed of the serpent and the children of the serpent will not win. And that God's kingdom will be realized not just through salvation. It will be realized through judgment. And yet, even in that, we see God's mercy. We see God's mercy in the midst of the judgment. And I think that's one of the reasons so much space is given to emphasizing the righteousness of Noah by faith. Because it teaches us that as evil as our times might be and as inevitable as, as judgment might be, we can be saved by grace through faith. But this faith, and this is so important in Southern Baptist life, this faith produces fruit. Justification always travels with sanctification. Faith always produces fruit. Think of an apple tree. Apple trees produce apples, or it's not an apple tree. A faith tree produces fruit that's organic to the DNA of the faith tree, always. And that's what we see here in the first part of our passage, the deliverance of the godly. Deliverance of the God. Look with me in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. All right? So the command to make the ark has been given. The ark has been built. And now it's time to enter it. He says, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Of course, we saw last time, Noah was not righteous in the sense of perfection. He was righteous in the sense of faith. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. Uh, he had trusted in God's provision, God's promises that will find their end in the Son of God, the Messiah, and just like you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah alone, Noah likewise was righteous and saved by that grace. 
Well, notice in verses 2 and 3. Take with you seven pair of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now, what's the deal with these seven pairs of clean animals? Well, if you look over in chapter 8 real quickly, just turn over there. We learn, and we're going to learn this later in the law, in the ceremonial system, that these clean animals would be offered as sacrifices to God. Look in chapter 8, after the flood, after uh, Noah leaves the ark, it says he built, chapter 8, verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And by the way, the word for altar is the word for slaughter. Uh, we think about altars where we pray at the altar. Well, the word means slaughter. It's where animals were slaughtered so that sinners could approach a holy God. So he built an altar to the Lord and took some of every note clean animal, unblemished animals. What do you think that's pointing us to? Uh, one who will be holy and blameless and undefiled, right? Um, and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the Lord, um, uh, on the altar. So again, this reminds us that Noah was not perfect and Noah was a sinner like you and me. So all this language about him being righteous and, and walking with God and, and, and godly, all that's true. But Noah needed a savior just like you and I. Uh, the only way to approach a holy God is through the blood, through the blood. And so that's why God tells him to bring these, these seven pair of clean animals on the ark. Well, notice in verse four, here we see God's final words um, before the flood. And they are words that are horrifying. They speak of total destruction. Verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. So God's intention to destroy all the living inhabitants of the earth is going to be mentioned four times in this chapter. Again, anytime in the Hebrew it's emphasized or when he's emphasizing something, the writer will, will repeat himself. And so you see four times. And note the language of 40 days and 40 nights. That is symbolic of a period of testing and trial. We, we see it throughout the Bible. Israel was in a w the wilderness for 40 years. Goliath taunts Israel for 40 days. Jesus, who is our substitute, who obeys God in, the, in, in spite of the serpent's temptations is tempted in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. And so Noah 
and his family are about to go through a great period of testing. Now, notice in verses uh, 5 to 16, uh, we just basically have a reiteration of what, what God has said. Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So, so what's the message thus far? Verses 1 to 5. Really, if you go back to chapter 6, what is the message thus far? First of all, the offspring of the woman, we cannot lose that promise. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is going to... It's going to drive the biblical story all the way to Jesus, all right? And so the first thing we know in the first five verses is that the offspring of the woman at this point is one man and his family. The the offspring of the seed of the woman is restricted to Noah and his family. But the second thing we see here more practical to us, the Lord takes note of the righteousness of his people. Sometimes you think that no one sees. It it doesn't matter if you're walking with God in in a world opposed. But in this passage, we are called to love righteousness as believers because the Lord takes note of and loves righteousness. And so this massive distinction has been made between God's people, Noah and his family, and everyone else. All of those outside of the ark. And the Lord is going to bring appropriate judgment. Verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So four times in this passage, we're going to see that they entered the ark. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. Noah's obedience. Again, His obedience is the fruit of faith. God, this is not a meritocracy. God is not giving uh, Noah blessings simply because Noah was inherently righteous. Noah is obeying God, but it's the obedience of faith. So this is all of grace. But he is doing all that God commanded because if you have saving faith, if you have saving faith, it always produces fruit. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The good works are the apples on the tree, all right? And it is grace and faith that are the DNA of the tree. Grace produced faith, which is the DNA of the tree. That's who Noah is. But I want you to keep in mind, Noah's father named him Rest. Noah, that's the the word for rest. He named Noah Rest in hope, remember chapter 5, verse 29, that he would bring relief from the curse on the ground. 
So here, in a very real sense, Noah has become the savior of the world as he has built this ark which would pass through the great flood of judgment. And so there is a, a, a type here preparing us for one who would come. Well, that brings us to the second part of this passage. We've seen the deliverance of the godly. And in the rest of the passage, verses 10 to 24, we see the destruction of the godless. Well, notice in verse 10, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. I'm assuming there were, because this is supernatural. For this to happen, this was supernatural. I'm assuming there were tornadoes and hurricanes and and tsunamis. I'm assuming that, that it was utter chaos on the earth. Uh, we've seen little microcosms of that, like remember what happened uh, right after, I think it was at Christmas uh, in Indonesia uh, around 2004. We've seen little microcosms, but this was worldwide. What we saw there uh, on December 26th of, ni- of 2004, this would have been worldwide. It would have been utter chaos uh, on the earth. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the precise date in verse 11 is something we need to take note of. I think it speaks, not that we need more proof, but it just speaks to the historicity of the account. Notice again, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month. That's quite detailed. It's quite detailed. Uh, So on that day, all the fountains of the deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. And so uh, the date recorded there has all the earmarks of a date that would have been remembered through the years. Last week was the 21st anniversary of 9-11 for the rest of American history. All you have to say is 9-11. And you will um, be reminded and you will know that that, that, what day that happened and and what happened that day. And you remember, for those of you who are old enough, as we saw this last week, for those of you who were alive, uh, you will always remember 9-11. Again, uh, we, we gathered in here on that, on that Tuesday night uh, to, to pray, to pray for our nation, pray for our world, to pray for justice and to pray for our victims. That's what's going on here. Uh, the 600th year, second month, 17th day. And the language here is utterly cataclysmic. What happened on that day and in that period of time 
is something that the world has never seen since. Again, we've just seen little pockets. Uh, Katrina, 2005, that's just a little pocket of what happened that day. Or on April the 3rd, uh, 1974, a tornado outbreak all the way from Ohio all the way down to Florida. Tornadoes spawning everywhere. That was my sixth birthday. That was not a good birthday. My uh, Sunday school teacher, Basin Baptist Church, lost her house that day because of those tornadoes. Those are just little pockets, little microcosms of what happened on a worldwide scale on this day. It's a picture of the reversal of creation. It's like a tsunami. If you've ever seen a video of a tsunami and how everything just is devastated in its path. That's what we see being pictured here. Remember how in Genesis 1, God had separated the waters from above and and the waters from below. But here in verse 11, he's bringing all of that together again. The waters above and the waters below, they're just, they're merging together. So when we think of rain, when we think of the flood, we just think of rain. It was much more than that. It was a cataclysmic, universal storm of epic proportions. If it had been a hurricane, it would have been a category five. If it had been a tornado, it would have been an L5. And yet every aspect of the creation was touched by it. Supernatural. Well, notice in verse 13. On the same day, very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that, keep, that creeps on the earth according to its kind. It's hearkening back to creation. And it's reminding us God's good creation is in a bad way. Because of human sin. Don't take sin lightly. And every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. I want you to note the name there, Elohim. That's important. That is the God of creation, as God had commanded him. But notice, and the Lord, Yahweh, shut him in. Two gods? No, one God. But Moses gives us two names for God. It's quite remarkable here. He shut him in. So Elohim, which is kind of like a generic name for God, like the, na- the English word God. So if you hear someone say, I just want to thank God. Um, for this, um, they may or may not be a Christian, right? Um, because they, they've just proven they're theistic because we believe in God too, but we know there's much more about this God, right? So this God, the, the God of creation, shuts them in, or he commands Noah, but in the same breath, Moses says, it was Yahweh. It was, this is the covenantal name. This is the name of the one who saves, the one who has 
who comes into covenant with his people. It's Yahweh who shut him in. And I think this is beautiful language. Don't overlook that. The Lord shut him in. This shows God's care for believers at the brink of judgment. If you watch the news too much, you're going to to have a lot of anxiety. Whatever happens, this text says, the Lord, Yahweh, shut his people in. So this speaks to God's care. This heavy door was locked in by an act of God. And I think this is an important illustration or a metaphor or a picture of of the believer's security. The rains would come. The storms would roll the earth in chaos. The floods would rage, but nothing would touch those who have been sealed in the ark by the Lord. The Lord shut them in. Torrential rains, as we're going to see, and the increase of waters, and they were secure. Notice in verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased, bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. This, this ark supernaturally survived chaos. So Noah built the ark, but I believe that God gave him special grace as he built that. And the waters prevailed so, so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered the waters prevailed above the heaven mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So th- this is a picture of floods raging over the world, unleashing total destruction. This flood was supernatural. That's the only way to explain it. It was a universal flood. I think it explains a lot of what we see in the created order today. Some have even said the continents were split potentially by these floods and and mountain peaks were formed by by the presence of this or or even things like you see the Grand Canyon. I don't know. It's impossible to say. But I do not believe the earth has looked the same since that 40-day period. And only Noah and his family survived. Verse 21 And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, male and animals, man and animals, and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out. From the earth, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 100 
in 50 days. This is colossal judgment. But understand, this judgment is only a shadow. It pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to the judgment in which it points. This judgment uh, in the days of Noah by God is a reminder that there will be a final judgment where God will render his just judgment on the world once for all. And Peter tells us in his epistle, the last epistle, last book that uh, Brother Al ever preached here. By the way, he's preaching here on December the 18th. So be praying for that. Looking forward to that. Peter tells us the next judgment will not be by water. It will be by fire. It will be by fire. And this text reminds us that the kind of judgment that awaits us is it makes this judgment look like JV. And this is intended to horrify us. Derek Kidner, the great uh, Old Testament scholar, says the first full-scale judgment demonstrates that with God, the truth of a situation prevails regardless of majorities and minorities. I love that. Who's the majority? The wicked? The minority? Eight. The majority? Who knows how many thousands? How many tens of thousands? How many hundreds of thousands? How many million? Eight is the minority. That is the group that God has set his favor and grace on. Is it fair? Absolutely. The only thing that you could complain about is that God was more gracious to the eight that he saved than they deserved. You cannot say to him it was wrong of you to punish and condemn the rest. And likely there were those who shook their fist at God and said, you didn't give us enough warning. You didn't give us enough time. But that judgment was not an arbitrary whim. God is not volatile like the false gods of the myths of the day. Peter again, first Peter says, 1 Peter 3, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. These were the days of God's patience in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Noah had been warning. Remember, Peter describes him as a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness. So as he's building the boat, He's preaching. And he had been warning them for over a century. There were other divine mercies as well. What was his grandfather's name? Methuselah. Which means when he dies, it shall come. When Methuselah dies, the judgment would come. And God made Methuselah the oldest man who ever lived. 
That's not arbitrary. He made him the oldest man who ever lived to give sinners time to repent of their sins. How many students do we meet on Thursday night who say to us, when I'm done with college, I'll get serious about this stuff. It happens all the time. And think, if you've watched, ever watched the Alfred Hitchcock, you can't, think, you can't help but think about this. Uh, think of the disturbing sight it must have been to have all of those animals beating a path to Noah's Ark. <laughs> that would have been a sight to behold. No doubt the rationalists would have had their reasons for that. They would have come up with a thousand reasons why that was happening. But the sign, and that was a sign for them, was ignored. Today, through the cross, Jesus, who offers us true rest, he's the true Noah. He's the true Noah giver, has provided an ark of salvation that is better than the ark that Noah built to save us from the coming judgment. Jesus, the greater Noah, he warned explicitly of coming judgment and spoke more about hell than he did heaven. So did the apostles who followed him. But only those who enter the ark of safety through the redeeming blood of the greater Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. Again, the main point here is to demonstrate what kind of person is saved from judgment. Noah provides the answer. Not a perfect person. Noah would need animal sacrifices. The wages of sin is death. And Noah was a sinner. But he does provide an answer. Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So being warned of this coming destruction, by the way, nor, uh, there had never been a flood before in the history of the world, nor had there ever been rain. That's remarkable faith. But he built this ark because he believed, Noah believed God's word and became certain of that which he had not yet seen, namely a terrible deluge of water engulfing the earth. And by faith, this Noah became sure of what he hoped for, Hebrews 11, namely the promise of salvation for him and his family. So, Hebrews 11, therefore by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's the, that's the importance of this passage. There's a judgment coming. There's already been a judgment. The judgment that we saw in, in C in Genesis 7 is horrific. There's human language cannot contain how catastrophic that judgment was. And it's minor league. It's minor league compared to the judgments that's coming. And yet, in the midst of that horrific narrative... We have a picture of salvation, not for perfect people, people who need a savior, but people 
who believed, people who by grace put their faith in the Lord. Of course, we know that faith, even better today, centers on the Son of God. And that's why we gather tonight on Sunday night, isn't it? To celebrate that Savior. But we also know some of you have not yet trusted in that Savior. So as Adam comes forward, we're going to have our pastors at the end of the aisle. I do not believe anybody can be scared into the kingdom. I do believe fear plays a role. I do believe that God uses fear as someone recognizes if I don't get right with God, I could experience a judgment that makes Noah's flood pale in comparison. But you also need more than fear. You need to behold Christ. You need to see him as lovely. You need to see him as beautiful. You need to see him as necessary. And so as we stand and as we sing, I want you to pray, Lord, show me Christ. Show me my need for Christ. Give me the grace I need to trust in Christ. Humble myself before the mighty hand of God and to commit my life to Christ who has made for me an ark of safety by his cross and his resurrection from the grave. Won't you respond to that message as we stand and as we say. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.